911, where's your emergency? Um, I don't know. We're on the bus and someone's trying to take our kids. Okay, where are you at? We're near Destiny Church. We're uh, down this dirt road. He has a gun. He has a gun? Yes, ma'am. Where's the guy with the gun now? He's at the bus door. He's at the bus door? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And what's the guy with the gun doing now? He's asking for kids. He's asking for kids? Yes, ma'am. Has he made it onto the bus? Yes, ma'am. He's on the bus. Very brave. You're doing good, okay? Thank you. Okay. Is he wearing like a dark shirt, light shirt? I don't know. You're too scared to look. I got you. What's he doing now, honey? He's screaming at the bus driver. He's talking to the bus driver? Yes, ma'am. He's aiming the gun at the bus driver? Yes, ma'am. Oh my gosh, what's going on? The bus driver's dead. Do what? The bus driver's dead. The bus driver's dead. The bus driver's dead. Oh my gosh. Hang in there, baby. Hang in there. Just get down. Get down. What's he doing now, honey? He took a kid. He took a kid. He took a kid. He got a kid. On January 29, 2013, in Midland City, Alabama, a 65-year-old man named Jimmy Lee Dykes boarded a Dale County school bus, telling the driver he wanted to take two children from the bus as hostages. When the driver heroically refused his demands, Dykes fired five shots, killing 66-year-old Charles Albert Poland Jr. Welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and I'm here along with your host, Michael Warren, and our guest, Kyle Vowinkle, who was a member of the elite FBI hostage rescue team who worked the Midland City, Alabama bunker hostage situation back in 2013. Now, last week, Kyle set up the facts of the case, and today he's back to break down the law enforcement response surrounding the incident involving the suspect, Jimmy Lee Dykes. Now, as you heard in the opening 911 call, our conversation last week kind of ended at the point where the school bus driver was shot and killed by Dykes. So, Kyle, kind of move us forward from there. What happened after that? Dykes grabs Ethan over his shoulder. He walks 150 feet or so back to his his underground bunker, which is more like his underground lair that he'd prepared over a year in the making this bunker to hold him and Ethan and to keep law enforcement at bay. He takes Ethan down the bunker, lays him on his like a bunk bed there. He comes up out of the bunker, uses his own cell phone. He calls 911 and Dykes himself tells law enforcement, I want you to come. I have a boy. I've shot the bus driver. It was his fault, right? Because he didn't listen. So he admits to killing the bus driver, admits to kidnapping a child and wants the law enforcement to come to him, which rarely, rarely happens. Now, I just have to ask, uh, so his bunker, if I'm reading it right, was six by eight in size, 12 feet deep. Now, it's your right to do whatever you want on your property, but at any time, was it ever suspicious to people in the community seeing him dig this bunker out? Yes, great question. He actually did enlist the help once or twice of a neighbor, and the neighbor helped him dig because this took a lot of work, right? and preparation. And he told the neighbor, he actually did a sound test with the neighbor. He had the neighbor down below, this is towards the end of construction, like close the lid and then had the neighbor yell because he wanted to know if he could hear it or not from the outside. And he told the neighbor it was his storm shelter. And he wanted to know if people could hear screams if he was in trouble down there. But reality, right, it was his room to house his kidnapped victim 
and keep law enforcement at bay. And he didn't want anyone to hear the child screaming. And that is somewhat plausible. I mean, it's Alabama. There are a lot of tornadoes that come through. So, I mean, there is I can see where kind of where he's going with that. Well, from a law enforcement perspective, get, getting a call, someone trying to kidnap somebody off of a school bus is a very it's an anomaly for lack of a better term. And then for the call taker to hear the shots being fired, then you added the anomaly of him calling 911 himself. So the initial officers respond out there. It, it says that there was, there was a speaking tube that he had rigged up that came from the bunker, came up in a different part of the property where almost like you have on a playground where, where kids on different parts of the playground would be. Right. So again, a, a fascinating device. He created his own communication system. He buried a PVC tube 170 feet. So just think of digging a foot or two feet down. I don't remember how deep it was, but burying this 170 feet tube, again, an open air PVC tube with a speaker circle at the end. It was like one of those science experiments you go or you go to the museum and you talk in one ear and you can hear it halfway down the hall, another ear. So it was rudimentary, but it worked. But it, it shows his level of preparation and planning. He did not want law enforcement to go up to that bunker. He created a communication device to keep us at bay, to keep law enforcement out of his kind of inner circle or inner perimeter. And so, yeah, the first responders, Houston County Sheriff's and Dale County Sheriff's Office, they have a mutual aid agreement. And uh, Bill Rafferty actually was the first negotiator there. He went to the FBI 40-hour negotiation course. So they smartly put him, actually, I think it was the second person to start talking to Dykes. Because Dykes on the phone call, Dykes instructs law enforcement, when you come out here, come to the white tube on the road, there's a speaking post on the road, you'll see it. So he directs law enforcement to go to that white tube and that's where law enforcement responds. That's where probably I would have responded. And again, Bill Rafferty, the first negotiator, starts talking to Dykes and you know, is trying to de-escalate right, situations, try to lower emotions, try to build a little rapport and you know, see what we can do about getting Ethan out of there. So very challenging, right? Very unique situation. But at some point he's notified that Ethan needs medication. Yeah. So in, in, in one of those early conversations during day one, Rafferty tells Dykes, hey, Ethan needs medication. He has, again, that form of Asperger's syndrome and he needs a pill at least three times a day. So Dykes's plan has already kind of gone out the window, right? First, he wanted no resistance from the bus driver. He had incredibly brave resistance. So he eliminates that obstacle, right? He kills Mr. Poland and he wanted a healthy child. Now he's a child needs medication. He wanted to keep law enforcement at bay, but now Rafferty successfully talked him into accepting tactical to come up and deliver medication to that hole, to the bunker. So now law enforcement gets to get right to that entry point and drop medicine in an envelope one pill at a time to him for Ethan. At some point, the sheriff decides, hey, this this is beyond our scope. We need additional resources. So the call is made to bring in uh, resources from the FBI. What was the first FBI response to this? Who, who was that? So uh, Sheriff Wally Olson did a fantastic job. He was in charge. He was a the sheriff there in Dale County in Midland City where this happened. And he reached out to uh, the Mobile FBI Special Agent Charge, Steve Richardson. And he contacted Steve and they Right. This is what we strive to do is in the bureau is have relationships with our state and local partners so that we know who each other are before an incident like this. They had known each other, had pre-existing positive relationship. He called Steve. Hey, this is this is a unique situation. Uh, definitely would request and appreciate FBI assistance. Steve sent some negotiators immediately to the scene and sent some of his SWAT personnel. And he sent a warning order, we'll say, to HRT 
saying, hey, we have an incident here, very unique, even probably beyond, you know, FBI SWAT capabilities. And this is why, right, HR2 is created. And then later that evening on day one, I believe, is an official word came down for the deployment, right? For HRT to deploy, the director himself will authorize a full team deployment in this case. And yeah, day two in the morning, we departed. Is HRT set up uh, similar to like the 82nd Airborne where there's a uh, an alert battalion? Is there an alert team that's ready to respond? Should something come in? Exactly that. Yeah, there's three different teams and one team is always on mission. And so that mission team is ready basically to go. You know, their bags are packed and there is an aircraft on standby at a nearby airport. When that word hits, then those guys will immediately get their bags. Or if they're, it's closer for them to go to the airport, they'll go to the airport. Someone else will get their bags and then meet the aircraft, load up and then fly out. If I'm reading this right, he had, and I know, I think Mike and I agree on this. We try not to mention these people's names and glorify them too much. But in this aspect, we kind of have to dance around a little bit. He had an anti-government agenda or message. What was the end game? Because this wasn't going to end peacefully, I don't think, the way he had it set up. No, he, he we had behavioral analysis professionals on site, and we as negotiators, right, were assessing his behavior. And we were really stymied initially, like, why is he doing this, right? He, he wanted a hearing. He wanted to force the powers that be that listen, right? He wanted the government to have to listen to him. You're right, he summoned this, like, tsunami upon himself, this law enforcement tsunami with the greatest law enforcement uh, counterterrorism team in the world, I would argue, right? HRT is there. So we are actively listening to him in eight hours a day. And he was an injustice collector, is what BAU termed it. He could not let go of past grievances. He didn't like the fact that in Indiana, I think he got a, a ticket for his 18-wheeler being overweight. But in Michigan, he made the weight limits. So we thought the discrepancy between states was uh, somehow out to get him, right? It was unfair solely to him. Uh, he'd been estranged from his wife and daughters for more than 20 years. So he's definitely as a loner. He had no social support network. So at the end of the day, I remember talking to my partner, Vince, he said this could go on for two weeks or two months, depending on if Dykes is receptive to alternative solutions besides a reporter going down to the bunker. That was what Dykes wanted. He said he would release Ethan only when a female reporter came down to the bunker. And then only then when the female reporter was in the bunker and she was shackled, then he would release Ethan. There was no other way around it because he knew that Ethan was his bargaining chip. He knew Ethan was his leverage. And once he released Ethan, that he was then vulnerable. So he wanted the reporter to tell a story. And he told us the story would take two or three days and it was going to make people go crazy. People were going to riot in the streets hearing his story. I'll tell you, I've listened to hours and hours and hours of it. There is no real story. He just rants about these injustices. He has no higher purpose or greater societal goal he just feels like he's been the victim his whole life, and he wants to tell his side of the story. And he's so committed and so believing in this self-created mission that he was willing to kill himself and kill others and then kill himself. Because at the end of the story, after he tells the reporter his two or three day fantastical tale, then he was going to put a plastic bag over his head, have a little plastic tube, which was connected to a helium tank. He was going to open the helium tank, fill that bag with gas, and drift off to Never Never Land while he holds a reporter's hand with his other hand. Then he would die. Then the re lucky reporter would have to find the file and file off her shackles and then escape once he had passed. So the, the worst of the worst, like diabolical ending that you can imagine. And we didn't know at first, it took us a few days to truly realize that this was not going to end well. 
because there was no way around him and his plan. He'd been planning it for so long. I mean, it, it's cemented in his mind what he wants and th- this order that it needs to go in in order to accomplish his mission. Exactly. He, and he did not like deviations from his plan. And again, I, I don't want to glorify at all, but this, if I'm not mistaken, he was a decorated Navy veteran, correct? Yes, yeah, so he was in the Vietnam era. He served in the Navy, but he did not serve overseas. Yes, he, he served our country, and we actually went back to his medical records to review that and his personnel records. There was nothing noteworthy from his Navy career, you know, it, either super positive or super negative. It was just kind of a, a mediocre, or I should say average service. I, I don't want to diminish his service. But then after that, yeah, his life just kind of went off the rails. At some point, negotiators were able to get him to accept a throw phone. Can you describe for our listeners who may not know, what, what, what is a throw phone? So this is a night one. This, I always give credit to the uh, Atlanta FBI negotiation team. Six individuals came down because they relieved those Bill Rafferty and those who'd been on the day shift day one. They came on night one and there was a storm coming. And remember, they're standing in front of this white post. At the White Post, actually, one of the FBI agents said, hey, I wonder what's down inside the White Post. So they put a small camera down the tube when it was dark, and they saw an obstruction there. They couldn't quite make it out what it was. So we have special agent bomb technicians, right, that deploy with HRT. And actually, there's SABTs. The bomb technicians are on the team now. So an SABT comes up, x-rays that speaking tube on uh, night one, and lo and behold, there's an improvised explosive device inside the speaking tube. So now this is not that we needed another game changing event, but now we have a truly offensive threat against law enforcement. He called, he summoned right law enforcement that speaking tube, and now he has a bomb placed in it. So we thought, is he trying to kill a negotiator? Is he just trying to kill the first responders? Like what on earth would this guy place a bomb? So the Atlanta negotiation team was a game changer. They said there's a storm coming And they said, we want you to be able to talk to us, right? Whenever you want, you can just pick up the phone and call us because we don't want to stay on out here in the rain in front of this, you know, speaking tube. Can you, you know, make it easier on us? But really, it's easier for you if we just drop you a throw phone. The FBI keeps statistics on this. Less than nine or eight percent of the cases do subjects accept a throw phone from law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But they persuaded him to accept it, which was a massive game changer because now we have constant communications with the subject. The negotiators enabled some sets of collection inside the bunker to provide live audio and video into the crisis site. That's invaluable, isn't it? Oh, okay. well, think about it. Beforehand, uh, and I'll tell you this way, uh, me and Vince, my partner, we argued actually with the behavioral analysis unit because they were worried that Dykes was sexually going to abuse uh, Ethan. And you, we looked at the letter, we read word for word, line for line. Nowhere in there does he mention sexual gratification or does he mention his desire to use these children. They were just bargaining chips. And same thing with his history. He had zero history of incident with minors. There was crushing pressure, right? Think of this from the decision makers, the on-scene commander, Steve Richardson and the sheriff. They have a man who's killed the bus driver. He's got a five-year-old hostage. We need to go save him because we don't know what's going on in the bunker. We have no intelligence into the bunker. But now the negotiators, right, have successfully enabled this covert collection to provide 24-7 visibility and audio into the crisis state. So now we're able to assess his behavior. And it was, again, a game changer. We saw Dykes, and this will sound crazy to you, but he is tending to Ethan's needs, right? He actually offers Ethan's, hey, do you want a citrus blend or fresh scent juice? Hey, I got some crayons. Here, I got a little toy. So we actually assessed the behavior as grandfatherly. He was truly tending to his needs, and he was actually, he would hang up on us. He would end a call with the negotiators in order to talk to Ethan 
and take care of Ethan's needs. So we're able to see and confirm that and provide the recommendation to the decision makers. Hey, as horrible as the situation is, right, we have a five-year-old kidnapped. It does not require an immediate tactical resolution, right? Because Ethan is not in imminent physical danger. So the intelligence allowed for better decision-making. Absolutely. As this thing's rolling on into in day two and to day three, would it be correct to label the scope of the response as massive in, in terms of, of people and equipment? And not only that, but you also have the media, because I, I can only imagine how much media coverage was going on. Absolutely. Each day, the... Uh media attention seemed to exponentially increase if that was possible. You know, day one and two was just a little bit. Day three, sharp rise. Day four, like a meteoric rise because each day dragged on. It just seemed to create a life of its own. And it was not just an FBI response, right? We had our Houston County or Dale County partners who we were truly embedded with and working hand in hand with the sheriff. We had over 25 different negotiators were on our kind of umbrella, the FBI negotiation team umbrella, which were the state and locals, right? Us all coming together. Tactical, we had probably 75 different tactical operators. It was a whole of government response. We actually had one of the former uh, HRT operator who's a former SEAL. He called down to the Gulfport uh, CB battalion, right? With the CBs, you familiar with what CBs do, oh, yeah. right? The construction folks. And he called them up and asked them, could you guys come up and build us a mock-up of the bunker? And within three, four hours, they had several 18-wheelers driving up on day two, and they constructed three different mock-ups of the bunker for HRT to practice and rehearse on. Hmm. That type of practice just cannot be overstated how valuable it is. It can't be. And, and that's what, again, highlight what the negotiators provided, right? The intelligence that negotiators provided through our conversations with Dykes, through that intelligence collection in the bunker, through the interviews of the neighbors, and then buying time for tactical. All that does is enhance then tactical's assault planning and their effectiveness and their rehearsals, right? Because now they're iteratively making it assault plan better and better with each passing hour because they, they get more intel. They refine the plan. They go test the plan in the mock-up. They come back and refine the plan. So that's one thing HRT uh, talk about critical problem solvers and having the capacity. HRT is just making this assault plan literally every hour better and better with that new information. And you were talking about the media being a presence. He actually had a television in the bunker watching the coverage, but you guys were able to use that to your advantage because if I'm not mistaken, that allowed you guys to humanize the young boy and make him not just a hostage, but an actual human being with you know feelings and he has a mom and dad out there and that sort of thing. Yeah, great point. Actually, I don't know if it was day three or four, local broadcaster interviewed a neighbor, uh, Rhonda Wilbur, who talked about Dykes and said kind of what a, a bad man he was and how he'd killed one of their dogs and how he was like a ticking time bomb waiting to go off were her exact words. So Dykes that night turns on the TV, he hears that, ticking time bomb waiting to go off. He tells us on the phone, that effing rhymes with witch. I should have killed her other dog too. Mm. So now his emotions are much higher. They're elevated. He's agitated. He's irritated. And right, what are negotiators trying to do? We want to lower emotions. We want to de-escalate. We want things calm inside the bunker. Because the last thing we want him to do is vent his rage against Ethan. We went all directed towards us law enforcement and we don't want to raise it at all. And now was not helpful to the situation at all. So my partner, uh, Vince, again, probably one of the greatest negotiators in the world said, hey, let's send a positive message from the sheriff back to the individual. So that was another very deliberate thing, right? We knew he had an anti-grudge with the government. 
with the big government. So we had Sheriff Wally Olson, the local law enforcement, as really the face. And he was the one engaged in the media for the most part. And so we crafted a statement with our national press office, the FA National Press Office, with the sheriff. And we said, hey, we'd like you to thank Dykes for taking care of a child. That means a lot to us. So think about this. This is a local elected sheriff, Wally Olson. He's going to go on national TV and thank the guy that just killed a bus driver and took a five-year-old hostage on a bus. He does it, and he does it magnificently, which to me was truly courageous by the sheriff to go on and, and say that. And so, yeah, he sent that positive message, try to humanize uh, Ethan, as you said. And we again, we're just trying to lower those emotions. So that, that media, which is one example of the many kind of creative items that happened during that you know seven-day ordeal in Midland City. Because what, what you're buying is discretionary time. Yes. HRT is ready to go uh, once they're on scene. If the situation pops up and there's a danger to the kid, they're ready to go then. But the response isn't going to be nearly as good as it is if they have a couple days to plan and practice. Right. So HRT, when they are, whenever they arrive on site, the first order of business is always to craft the emergency assault plan. So literally within minutes of arriving, part of the team will equip up and have an emergency assault plan. Like if we're ordered to go in the next 10 seconds, this is our emergency plan. Everyone is briefed. The commander is briefed. It's the best plan with the information available at that time. Meanwhile, the secondary set, different team leaders and individuals are going to create the deliberate assault plan. And that's the one that is continually being refined and they will go do the rehearsal. They may change the emergency as time goes by as well, but the real focus is making that deliberate plan the best it can be, right? To reduce the risk to tactical and the victim, and obviously make the subject at the greatest disadvantage as possible. A lot of people say, well, you know, where were the snipers at during all this? But this guy had been very prepared, right? Because when the medicine and and that type of thing was delivered, the lid that covered the entryway was only raised about an inch or two, just enough so that that could be delivered. He really had thought about this. Very, Very smart guy. Again, he was intelligent and not like technically savvy, but he thought out this plan like we've talked about it for over a year. And the roof lid was probably 150 pounds, made of two by sixes. The lid was so heavy, he actually attached two garage door springs to the top. He had a telephone pole, two garage door springs coming out so that he could one person lift that hatch lid. Not only was that hatch lid super heavy, he put in three eye bolts, like thick steel eye bolts underneath that hatch lid. And he had bicycle locks, like cable locks, attached to each of those three uh, eye bolts, which then fed down into the bunker. And he had that on a winch. He controlled access to the bunker, right? So when we go do the medicine deliveries, we'd have a negotiator call ahead of time. Hey, we got Ethan's morning meds. Okay, we come deliver it? Sure. So we'd prep him. He'd know we're coming up. Then we'd come up, knock on that bunker lid. Hey, Jim, it's us. Can you release the cables? We got Ethan's meds. So then he would unwind just a little bit of the cables, just enough to open that lid about an inch. And then we'd slide that envelope through, it'd drop down, we'd leave. And I hate to use the word stable, but at least during the first part of this, he was relatively stable enough and he took care of Ethan, as you described. But then something happened and we started to see a change in the way he was acting. Yeah, so... So day five kind of be- or was definitely the beginning of the end. And I should back up, just talk about day two is right when Serg arrived. And when I arrived and Vince and I were kind of divvying up responsibilities, he was a senior negotiator. He kind of took the lead with command. And then I said, hey, I'll be the like, tactical liaison, right? Because of my background at HRT and heard, hey, there was the medicine deliveries, right? And I said, hey, anytime there's communication with a subject, 
Anytime that law enforcement is talking to a bad guy, we should have a negotiator there. And they didn't have a negotiator going up to the bunker lid with law enforcement. So then I became that forward negotiator. Rafferty was still a primary, like on the phone with Dykes for those long hour, hour, and hour long calls. Then I would go up for that tactical delivery just for those short conversations we have because Tony was the name of the local sheriff and he was the one that was doing the communications. And so I talked to him. I said, hey, let's establish a consistency of communications. So each and every time we're saying the same thing and let's establish, review the active listening skills. Uh, negotiators use or try to elicit any information we can and just try to build rapport because even those small opportunities, if we build rapport and make, make a relationship with Dykes, it may come to our advantage later. And it's exactly what happened. So on day five, one of those garage door springs had come off in the storm and Dykes knew that there was only one. I don't recall how he knew there was only one, but he said, hey, I heard this on the negotiation on the phone Friday morning, or excuse me, day five in the morning. He said, hey, I can come up and help you guys attach that garage door spring to the hatch. So think about this. We have hundreds of law enforcement out there, right? We literally have a whole of government response. We've got DOD, the SECDEF office was calling SAC. What can the military provide? We had ground penetrating radar. We had overhead assets. We had literally everything that the U.S. government could provide was at our disposal to try to save one child, which is also remarkable and heartwarming, right? The lengths, the Herculean lengths that we went to to save one child's life should make everyone proud of their uh, law enforcement. So for Dykes to offer to help us, right, is just kind of mind boggling. But it, it shows that that rapport building that negotiators were trying to do every delivery and the rapport building that Rafferty was doing on the phone with him paid off massive dividends because now the subject is willing to help us do something which we don't need any help. It's almost like he's like a narcissist behavior, though. He's like, well, I, I can do it. Exactly. I, I Again, I almost couldn't believe it because I thought he is going to lift up the hatch lid with both hands, which means hopefully that there's no hand on a gun, no hand on an IED initiation. And hopefully Ethan is down below. And if those three things are true, right, the HRT operator may be able to break a shot. Because the other thing I should tell you is inside the bunker, we also observed another improvised explosive device. So now he had two IEDs, one outside at the speaking tube, the white speaking tube, and then one inside, which he threatened to detonate if anyone made entry to his underground lair. I run to the HRT uh, team leader. I said, hey, we may have an opportunity here. And I say we, but really tactical. You know, he's getting a perfect opportunity for tactical if his hands are up there, right? And Ethan's away. So we go brief. The team leader loves it. We brief the HRD commander and the on-scene commander Richardson. Everybody loves the plan. You know, have the green light for tactical intervention if the conditions are, again, appropriate. So that is a noon delivery. And things are kind of rushed, right? I actually, we always wore a Peltor hearing protection. That day I forgot mine because it was in so kind of hectic. And we go up to the hole and Tony knocks on the hole, lifts up the hatch lid. We deliver the meds in, right? So our routine is meds first. And then if we do toys every couple of days, we did toys. We weren't delivering a second item. He was going to come up, right? So then I see Dykes come to the ladder. I see the top of his hair and I put my fingers in my ears because the operator's right there. As the hatch lid opens like that, the operator is laying prone, getting ready to take a shot. But that's a, a no-fail shot if there ever was a no-fail shot. You have to be 100% sure that Ethan is not there. You have to be sure that you know he's not just below it. You can't be off even a half inch on your shot. Uh, and there's also the offset. You have to take into account with your optics at closer distance. So as just the top of the hair is visible, like I said, I put my hands in my ears. And Dykes, as the operator is confirming his shot, 
Dykes must have seen like the glint of sunlight off the metal barrel or something. He somehow senses or saw that barrel. He drops the hatch lid, says, you motherfuckers were just trying to kill me. I was trying to help you. So he starts kind of going at it with, with Tony and Tony's trying to help. And I'm trying to give Tony suggestions and it not going well there at the bunker lid. I finally physically pulled Tony off, said, we got to get out of here. This is not going well. It's just enraging dykes more and more that we converse with them at the bunker. So I probably, I probably let it go on for 30 seconds too long. Again, we finally pull off out of there and Rafferty tried to call in and say, Hey, you know, it was a new guy at the hole. He was just too close. He'll never be up there again. It's not what you think. Dyke says, you know, bullshit. He, he doesn't buy it. Uh, that night, he's like, you can see the mental gears kind of turning his head. He, he's twiddling his thumbs, laying down. He knew that we were going to kill him. And so that's what, again, precipitated kind of Dykes' change of, he gave us a deadline the next day. He said, by 5.30 tomorrow, the survivors will be held accountable. And he begins to objectify Ethan. He turns around to Ethan. He's no longer tending to his needs. And now all those risk factors have gone off the chart with the threats from him to kill Ethan and the deadline. We now have no alternatives. We see no really viable outcome to this except assaulting. And the, but there's no real good, great as HRT is. We didn't have a rock solid kind of plan to set them up for success. He had purposely set you up to fail. I mean, the, the entire design, it, w- it was designed to be able to withstand that. People will often second guess, uh, not not just the HRT, but but all law enforcement whenever decisions is made. But you have to make the decision based upon the information you have available right then. It's often limited information. Uh, during this incident, people were talking about, hey, why don't they just put some sleeping gas down there? But, but you remember in Russia when the terrorists take over of the theater, and they tried pushing gas in there. And what the end result was they ended up killing a bunch of the hostages. It's just a bad situation all around. And now he's not sleeping well. And all these things are starting to go. So now you start to see this downward spiral. So what happened next? So great point with the, was it Beslan? I think at school. Yes. Yeah. It was like a 15%, I believe, mortality rate. 15%, right? That's not an acceptable <laughs> calculation in, in U.S. law enforcement. We don't want a single uh, fatality. So actually we did, the Bureau did look into sleeping gas and we consulted medical professionals. And the problem was anything in a high enough dosage to put dykes to sleep could be lethal to Ethan. So we explored, again, we had a ground penetrating radar from the military. We had structural engineers looking at this ground to see, is there any other way to come in, right? Because he'd created a kind of a perfect fatal funnel, one way in, one way out. And he even said that during one of the calls, you go ahead and send those people down the funnel to their grave because he knew it was one way in, one way out. It's like a tactical nightmare. There's no other way in because the engineers told us if we dug in from the side or try to tunnel in from the side, it would potentially collapse the bunker. We also, one of the early plans was HRT's breach was going to be a tow cable to the top of that hatch lid and just yank it off. Right. And again, the engineers said, hey, you yank off that lid. That could be the structural integrity for the roof, right? Because there's no plans for his construction on on file with the county, right? This thing is just an ad hoc thing that he made. So we rip off that roof. Again, the whole structure could collapse, put tons of dirt on him and Ethan. HRT has run out of plans, although just give an example of the length HRT went to. Our HRT commander, I know, rented two dirt-sucking trucks. I didn't ever knew these things existed, but they're (laughs) basically like a vacuum-sucking truck to pull dirt out. God forbid if it did collapse... On Ethan, we had two trucks there ready to move in to suck out the dirt to try to save Ethan. So we were very worried about that potential collapse. 
Uh, we even tried drills to see if we could drill into the wood, but that made too much noise. There were almost no ideas off the table. And the one thing that Dykes had mentioned once earlier in the week was that he would like to speak with his daughters, right? Even though he hadn't spoken to either one in over 20 years, uh, we reached out to both the daughters and asked them, would they be willing to help the FBI to try to save Ethan? And one of them politely declined. She did not want anything to do with her father. And thankfully, the other one agreed. She said, oh, I'll come up. So we had her driven up, brought to the crisis site, and we talked with her there, discussed, would she be willing to talk to her father? And she said, yeah, I'd be willing to do it. So this is like day six now, right? There's, there's no good ideas. And I thought, how can we create that maximum distance between the victim and the hostage? And how can we set up a tackle for success? So I proposed a plan. I went to the HRT commander and said, hey, if we deliver toys to Ethan, we, I'd seen this before. We delivered toys twice before, and he'd taken them to the far side of the bed. And in this thing, the stairwell comes down. Then there's the TV and two beds. And Ethan took it to the far side of that left bed. And if we deliver toys to Ethan and we deliver Skype, like a video tablet, a laptop, we lower that down to Dykes just at the top of the ladder well, maybe a foot or a foot and a half, and if we get Dykes to come up and talk to his daughter, then boom, we will have created the maximum distance between victim and subject in there and also set up tactical for position of advantage because then they could have charges on top of that roof lid. And ideally, those charges would disorient or possibly take Dykes out when he was talking to his daughter. So that was my plan. I briefed it to HRT, the sheriff, the FBI director, a tense uh, day as we're going back and forth. But thankfully, the, the director approved it. And so the next morning on, on day seven, I was carrying that tablet, which was hardwired to the other tablet, which the negotiator was holding for Cindy, his, his daughter, to talk to Dykes. We went up and knocked on the thing, our usual, we delivered the meds to Dykes. And actually, I should back up. This is a key part. You know, everyone on the law enforcement side liked the idea for the assault. That is, we talked about earlier, that the one thing that you never can control is the bad guy, right? The bad guy always gets a vote in the plan. And so we had to sell it to Dykes. And so in typical negotiator fashion, we sold it as his idea. <laughs> hey, you mentioned earlier in the week, you wanted to talk to your daughter. We brought your daughter here. We don't want to put her inside the bunker. We want to keep her safe, but we're going to put her on a video screen with you. And this is back in 2013, right? Skype was really in its early stages and not widely adopted. So he wasn't super familiar with it but he was willing to accept it. And we said, hey, we'll lower it down and then you'll get to talk to your daughter. And we didn't mention him part of the toys or anything like that. We just mentioned that communication with his daughter and he liked it, thankfully. So we knew we had at least sold him initially on the plan to talk to his daughter. So I wanted to make sure that was conveyed. So when he lowered it down there, it wasn't like, you know, brand new concept to him. So I'd marked it with tape, you know, 18 inches down. So when I lowered it down, the bunker lid, I didn't want it to go too far down, right? I wanted to get him as high up that ladder as possible. And the conditions for HRT to assault, this is what we'd briefed the FBI director on. And he said that the two triggers have to be met, meaning the first trigger was Ethan had received the toys and taken them to the far side, right? So Ethan was safely as far away as possible. And Dykes was up the ladder well. If those two triggers were met, then HRT could initiate the plan. So that's the, and I'll just pause here because this is kind of the perfect example. I would argue this is one of the greatest hostage rescue missions in FBI history because it synchronized the negotiation efforts and the assault, the tactical efforts, like so perfectly. If you look at the Bureau's history, like in Waco, there was a massive disconnect right between negotiators and tactical. And we saw the disastrous results there. And they, they both made, both those entities made mistakes. And afterwards, you know, a surge was created 
mainly to kind of rectify that, bring negotiators and tackle under one umbrella, under one emboss in that tackle section. And this was kind of the 180 degree from Waco, like the perfect symbiotic relationship with tackle negotiators. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in that middle role and now the perspective of being the former tackle and obviously negotiator and again, crossing back and forth that bridge and then developing the plan. Because even my partner said, Kyle, I couldn't have gone and proposed that plan to tackle. Nobody would listen to me. But because I had those eight years there and the respect of the teammates and the respect of the command, I was able to throw that plan out. And it was a, what we say is an, an ideal kind of parallel approach plan, meaning think of tactical and negotiators on two different railroad tracks and that they should be mutually supportive all towards the same goal of, you know, safely recovering the hostages and capturing the bad guy. But they go at different speeds. Sometimes they take different routes sometimes, but they should be, again, parallel approach plans to the same objective. And this plan was that. Let's say Dykes brought Ethan up with him up the ladder. Then Dykes would just talk to his daughter. We would not trigger the plan and he would be none the wiser. So it was like a trap that didn't have to be sprung and would not be realized by the subject. So that's why I liked it. It was a parallel approach plan, which we could reset and do again later that day. If the conditions weren't right, if those two triggers weren't met, then we don't have to initiate the assault. So I deliver the laptop. We deliver the toys. The one thing we don't control besides Zykes is Ethan. And Ethan, thankfully, takes the toys to that previous spot where I had noticed him play with the toys in the bed. So now the first part of plan is going according to plan. But I lower the laptop. Dykes comes up. We have backed off now. Uh, the ground force commander said he saw Dykes' hand in front of the monitor. The daughter calls out, hey, dad, it's me. Hey, dad, it's me. And then the ground force commander orders the assault. Charges go off. The first man jumps in the hole. And I wish you guys could see the video when I give the presentation that my words don't do it justice because the explosion, again, eliminates those three eye bolts, but they're very precise explosive too, right? These explosive charges are the minimum amount of explosives in order to accomplish a job, right? Because we can't have too large of an explosive charge. Again, it could collapse the structure. We don't want anything to hurt Ethan. So thankfully, again, with the CB's mock-up, we're able to test these charges on basically an exact replica numerous times out on the range to make sure those eye bolts, right? Because we want to defeat those three eye bolts. So giving another example of the creativity, the breachers would go up with a little rare earth magnet during the medicine deliveries and would float that magnet over the top of the wood to identify where exactly the eye bolt was. So one delivery, they hung there, so they took a black Sharpie, put a circle around that eye bolt, and came back the next delivery. They found the other eye bolt. So then by day four, we knew exactly where those three eye bolts were that held those cables. So they knew exactly where to attack with those small precision charges. This is another example, just the brilliant kind of creativity of the uh, breachers and operators there at HRT. You talk about deliberate. You know, the deliberate assault plan is vast because it has to be. I mean, there's so many factors, but the charges go off. And I would imagine that that probably disoriented the, the dirt bag somewhat. What happened next? So the, the team had, during their deliberate rehearsals had developed entry technique because it's like 11, 12 foot drop from the top of the bunker lid down. And one of the guys came up with an idea. Hey, let's have a, a steel bar. So we drop down the steel bar catches on top of that frame of the hatch. They can drop down only two feet, you know, instead of a, dropping down 11 feet. And then in rehearsals, they noticed that that bar was moving back and forth, you know, rolling. They went to the local steel shop. They welded on a couple like oars almost on the side, but and then they dropped down and then it moved less. But again, they're constantly refining, constantly making better. So then they put in like divots into the ore so it would catch into the wood. So at one time they dropped down, it would catch and they could drop down those two feet. 
the number one man from Marine has that bar, drops down, but he doesn't drop all the way down. He's like in the bunker opening, it stops at like his chest. It's almost like an elevator shaft. If someone had walked into an empty elevator shaft, you expect them to drop down. We all expect him to drop down to the bottom, but he doesn't. He's like floating in midair and all of us are just perplexed. It doesn't make any sense. And now the worst thing that can ever happen, right? Uh, he starts receiving fire from Dykes. Dykes is now actively resisting and shooting. So he can't identify exactly where Ethan is. He has to seize a muzzle flash, right? But he doesn't know Ethan could be right in front of him. So he is literally defenseless there in this fatal funnel. And the senior team leader, a guy named Whit Darnell, just did some fantastic leadership, said, hey, pull him out, pull him out. They pull him out. The number one man is so hyped up. Paramedic is there. Asked him, are you hit? Are you hit? He says, I don't know. You tell me. He pats him down. Meanwhile, the senior team leader, Witt, says, hey, put in a canine. They grab. We have some of the best canines in the world. Train with the Army. And, you know, they go home with our operators. They're truly great force multipliers. They put in the canine. And same thing with the canine. The canine does not drop down the hatch. It's like stuck there. So meanwhile, the team is deploying flashbangs, non-lethal concussion devices, just to try to distract Dykes and keep him occupied because we don't want him to initiate the IED. However, he does pull on that outside IED cord, the one at the speaking tube. So we had surrounded with sandbags, the SABTs, but he ignites that and it still surprised us and rocked all of us because now he's fired the number one guy. He's pulled that IED. What's to stop him from detonating the IED? Luckily, the IED inside required some finite motor skills, and that was just a gross motor skill movement to activate the IED out at the speaking tube. He just had to yank the cord. But for the inside IED, he had to line up like a pellet gun with a shotgun primer. So it required, again, two-hand dexterity and coordination. So things are not going well, right, for, for HRT. Our assault principles in a hostage rescue are speed, surprise, violence of action. And now we have no surprise, right? The subject knows we're trying to enter. We have very little violence of action, with the flashbangs, and we don't have any speed because we're not in there. After the canine comes out, the team, I've never sensed this before in my entire, you know, 11 years in that tactical section. It was almost a sense of failure, which I'd never sensed before. A sense of like doom, like this does not happen to the FBI hostage rescue team. We have a primary breach point, a secondary breach point, a tertiary breach point, a failsafe breach point to get into crisis sites. Here we had one. We could not get in that one point. And we could, we didn't know why, right? The first man couldn't get in. The canine couldn't get in. And Wit, that senior team leader, he sensed that feeling. He sensed that the team needed a little jolt. Very simple words, but they were very moving and they're exactly what needed to be said. He said, guys... This is what we do. Get in the hole. Get in the hole. And I tell you, it was like a spark, like I've never felt or seen before. Breachers then reach in to try to see what the obstruction was. It prevented the number one man and the canine from going down. They feel another set of cables, right? We had already disrupted the one set of cables to the three eye bolts, but he had put in another set of cables. So there are two breaches are reaching in. By the way, the breachers are being shot at. So these guys are risking their life trying to clear the way. One guy has a shotgun. He clears it with a shotgun. The other guy has a pair of cable cutters, clears his side of the cable cutters. And then they say clear. And now the same number one guy, by the way, the guy who's already been shot at, knows there's a man actively resisting, waiting to kill him upon his entry, does, I think, the bravest thing I've ever seen. And I'll just say this, right? I've been in numerous life-threatening situations. I've been in combat. I've been on over 100 missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've seen some incredibly brave things from men and women in uniform. I've never seen anything as brave as what that number one man does. He could have easily stepped out of the line of march, right? 
he's already been shot at. He could have easily said, hey, I, I'm going to check my knee or whatever. Like, nobody would have said squat to him. It was his job to be number one. It was his job to get in that hole. And he felt that responsibility to the team. And this is why that HRT selection process is so important, right? We need guys to do what he did without even thinking. And he jumps back in that hole, drops the 10 or 11 feet because he dropped the bar at this point. And he was going to lunge forward. That was the plan. Always the rehearsal was just going to lunge forward. And he was going to encounter one of two things, right? He's going to encounter either a subject that is to fight to the death, or he's going to encounter an innocent five-year-old who has no idea what's going on. You know, in law enforcement, Mike, officers have to make those life and death situations with literally the flip of a switch. And this is what's so hard for people not been in the community to understand. And officers do make mistakes, but to try to make that life and death situation, the flip of the switch, imagine lunging forward, not knowing, oh my God, it's a fight to the death or I'm going to protect this innocent with everything I have. He lunges forward and he encounters Ethan. Dykes is to the left. The wall is to the right. He grabs Ethan. He turns towards the wall, literally turning his back towards Ethan. Pardon me, I get choked up every time. Protects Ethan with his own body. Says, Ethan, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay, Ethan. Because he knows the number two and the three man, four man are coming in and they're going to stop this threat. That's what HRT operators do. Number two man goes in. He engages Dykes. He can smell his rancid breath. He shoots him two or three times in the chest. He has a Glock though. Dykes fighting to the end, closes the distance. And guess what? His chest engages the barrel of the Glock as he's pulling the trigger. And that is a slide release for the Glock. So the Glock goes out of battery. The Glock is no longer functioning. Number two man then wrestles him to the ground. Number three man comes in. So next to number two guy, by the way, is former army ranger. So now we got a Marine, a Ranger, and third guy in is a former Navy SEAL. So we have the perfect kind of joint operation <laughs> going on. A fantastic representation of all the services. The SEAL comes in. He has a light on his weapon. He turns it on because he knows HRT operators are wearing the cry camouflage and the bad guy's wearing blue jeans. He sees the blue jeans, so he works his way up to his head. Meanwhile, the number two guy is transitioning to his rifle, and they both almost simultaneously engage the threat and eliminate dykes ethan is in the number five man comes in grabs ethan he is lifted out and we all see him overwhelming emotions from all of us right especially anyone who's a parent having a five-year-old i mean held hostage for seven days in the underground bunker so seeing him was truly one of the most joyful moments of my life besides my own children being born and then they whisk him off to the hospital and he, he tells the doctors there man those guys shoot a lot <laughs> Ethan was confused with the flashbangs, right? Each one of those concussion going off inside the bunker he thought was us shooting at him, even though it wasn't. Uh, and incredibly, you know, Ethan was unscathed and the operators were unscathed. How that number one man wasn't shot, you can see in the pictures, there's shots like all around him in that bunker. Truly miraculous how he wasn't hit. Because was, Dykes was kind of goosenecking around the corner of me shooting. Right? He didn't have a sight picture or anything, but sheer luck. But just an incredible... Right, creativity, incredible synchronization of tactical and negotiation, and incredible heroics at the end of the day. It was the HRT heroics of those five guys that went in the bunker to save Ethan. What is lost in this retelling of the story is that this has all taken place in very tight confines. I mean, a six by eight room with this chute that drops down, poor lighting conditions. I would imagine that the explosives and the, and the flashbangs, they've stirred up all kinds of dust. I mean, limited visibility, literally lunging forward, not knowing what I'm going to encounter. But then when I get that little boy, you're okay now. The fight's still going but you're going to be safe. 
here am I, send me is what kept popping it up into my head. That type of bravery on the part of our, our law enforcement is the untold story too often. It, it just isn't told often enough and it's not told loudly enough. I'd like to think I'd do the same thing. I'd like to think that I'd do that, but jumping in a hole like that, knowing what is waiting on you because you've already been there once and still going back again. Now, you mentioned it. The visibility was almost zero, right? Because there were no lights. There were no functioning lights when they went in. And then the flashbangs, you're right, kicked up massive amounts of dust and debris. You had to fight in that confined space with a victim and with an active adversary who was actively fighting against you. Right. And it took shots to the chest and is still fighting you. Again, that's why uh, those gentlemen received the Presidential Medal of Valor. They went to the White House, deservedly so. Absolutely. Those five individuals in the hole. It's one of those things that, that we see the end result. But this, this mission, and, and it truly is a mission, was so large. And everything was going towards that outcome. And when you achieve that outcome, that has to be one of the best feelings that there is out there. Absolutely. Well, at first, that kind of emotional relief that, that I felt like I, I literally I, after Ethan was taken to the hospital and all the guys came out safely, I, I had to walk alone out to a little like rise. I remember and I, I just started bawling, crying. And not that I'm big and macho. I don't I just don't cry much. Not that I try not to, but I could not hold back the tears. And I remember Vince, my partner, came up to me and said, You're, are you OK? And I said, yeah, we did it. We did it. And I knew, right, that he had done fantastic work and numerous people had done some incredible work there. But right, I had helped orchestrate this plan or the guys that went in for sure. And that's why I always highlight them and the way it all came together. I will argue that no other team in the world could do that. And I've been fortunate enough. I've trained and deployed with Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, German GSD-9, the British SAS, the Australian. And they are fantastic, incredible units. I maintain they could not integrate it as well as we did in Midland City and do what the tactical section did. You, you and I, as we talked before, uh, I want to highlight this as we, we're, we're bringing this to a close. Would it be accurate to say that the ultimate goal of those in crisis negotiations is not only the safe release of hostages, but also the safe apprehension of the bad guy? Best case scenario, would that be correct? Uh, absolutely, yeah. We lo- those in law enforcement, we we do not want to hurt others. We people have horrible days, right? People get fired, their spouses cheat on them, they you know lose their house. Like there's some horrible circumstances which could come upon any of us, and sometimes all those factors combine to make people do like crazy stuff or kind of lose their mind. And especially the older I get, the more compassionate that I become. And we don't want anyone right to to lose their life. They don't have to, especially if it's just one of those horrible, like worst days in their life. It's not worth permanent ending to really temporary problems. The mission is not just the saving lives, right? Which is it is primary to save the victims and law enforcement. But it's also if force has to be used, right? If we have to send in HRT, then my goal, part of the reason I became a negotiator also was I'm going to do whatever I can to maximize the advantage to law enforcement and maximize the disadvantage to the subject. So if that hammer of deadly force has to be used and we're going to want to use it, but we have to use it, then I want to set up tactile for success. And again, Dothan was just the best example you know, of that. Like you said, the ultimate goal is not to use the hammer, but the decision to use the hammer was really not made by law enforcement. It was made by the subject. His continued actions are what necessitated the use of the hammer. 
that's one point. And then the second point would be, it is incredibly encouraging to me and comforting for me to know that if the hammer has to be used, that we have people out there that are really good at using it. Because if they weren't good at using it, we probably wouldn't have had the outcome that we had with Ethan. You're absolutely correct. You know, I think Patton had a good line, like the more you you know bleed in peacetime, the less you'll bleed in war. So you have to have units prepare and do those arduous, incredibly demanding missions so that if, if called upon to use that hammer, that they are primed and ready to do it. And to your first point, I, I couldn't agree more. Subject always gets a vote. The bad guy always gets a vote in the outcome. And even when I remember in the army battle planning, we would say that their plan never survives the first contact intact, meaning it's always going to deviate, but you still have to create a plan. And with the case of the subject, you know, Dykes had numerous opportunities. We we created and offered several nonviolent possible endings to that standoff with him, offered several ideas to have him release Ethan, have him talk out, you know, broadcast this message to a reporter once he came out. You know, so we would still get his word out, which we said, hey, that you just want to get your word out. We'll help you get your word out. But we just have to get Ethan out of there. And he he chose in the end to fight it out. Right? He chose to kidnap a child. Right. He chose to kill a bus driver. He chose to keep us at bay and not accept any of those alternatives that we offered and suggested to him. So he, he absolutely chose his own outcome. We did not want to do that. We would, we would have much rather had Ethan come out and him as well. Like we had no uh, grudge certainly against him nor, nor anyone we, we deal with. That taking of life is only done to save lives. Right? The HRT motto is Servare Vitas, to save lives. So that is the mission of the hostage team. It's not to take lives, it is to save lives. So that is ingrained in, in every operator in every mission. And America is unique in, in the world in that our law enforcement military remains separated. We can integrate in the ways that you talked about, but there's different missions and different missions require right. different tools, different tactics. I, for one, am very, very happy and very, very thankful that we have people like you that have been willing over a lifetime to serve the public like that. So I want to not only thank you for being here today, but thank you for what you've done over three decades of service. I enjoy meeting people who live life intentionally and live life with purpose. And you certainly fit into that category. So thank you for being here with us today. No, I appreciate it. Like, this is a privilege. This is my first podcast <laughs> as well, my first post bureau. So I, I want to just tell this story, right? I want to highlight law enforcement. And again, the Herculean efforts that team went to to save one child. And yes, the FBI and all law enforcement has is not perfect. We're filled with humans and humans make mistakes. But 99.9% of law enforcement is trying to do the right thing and protect and serve the community. My goal also is just for others to get that respect and admiration back for the law enforcement community because it's you know so difficult right now and challenging. This. And that's our goal here on uh, Between the Lines is, is to tell those stories to tell the stories of law enforcement, because you're absolutely correct. The overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority of the people do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And we want to be able to share those stories. So thank you for sharing uh, yours with us. Brent, I don't know about you, buddy, but there were a couple of times there that uh, I needed to mute my microphone. Yeah, I, I did a lot of research coming into this episode, reading articles and watching videos. But having folks like Kyle on really gives us that perspective of what these men and women are going through in these in these operations and and it provides some insight so 
people can understand their points of view and their emotions and their feelings. And it's so important that they're able to come on places like this and and, and talk about it. So again, Kyle, we thank you for coming and, and sharing your story today. And, and if there's anyone listening that has a, a, a story they'd like to share, we always extend an invitation for folks to come on and, and join us. And uh, you can email us at any time at between the lines at virtualacademy.com. I encourage you to go to our website and listen to some of our past episodes. We're all listed right there. Uh, along with uh, podcast providers as well. That's it, uh, Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. Kyle, we want to thank you so much for being on with us today. You've been very open, uh, very candid. Obviously, you have a wealth of knowledge, and I'm sure you've merely scratched the surface today. So if we've got some folks that are listening and they want to hear more from you, how can they go about doing that? I I do give this presentation, and I've given it uh, all over, actually, the U.S. and the world. But in that law enforcement community, but I'm now giving the presentation leadership and a negotiation perspective. If people are interested corporate leadership or negotiation training, please go to my LinkedIn profile, Kyle Volmichael. Message me there if interested so I can continue to promote the uh, FBI post-retirement. We'll have a direct link to that in the episode page. Folks can find that right there between the lines, virtualacademy.com. We'll make sure we drive them to you. Great. Thank you both very much. Really privileged to be on here. And thank you guys for trying to educate and promote law enforcement to uh, others as well. Noble mission you guys are uh, undertaking. 